Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. I'm Douglas Carswell and I'm joined today by the Labour MP, Kate Hoey. Kate, thank you very much for coming. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. Now, what's it like being a Labour Member of Parliament who supports Brexit? Uh, it's been quite a lonely sort of experience, although there are a small number of us and we're all very close uh, when it comes to um, talking about the EU. But I comfort myself by thinking that I'm actually part of a, a lovely tradition of wonderful um, MPs who I vaguely remember when I came in uh, to Parliament 30 years ago. Uh, the people like Peter Shore, who I have very, very fond of. Tony Benn. He, he just, led the original he referendum. He led the original and um, Bob Cryer. There were a whole group of people who uh, I first came into contact before I got elected, but then when I got elected, and one of the earliest debates was the Maastricht Treaty. And I remember being sitting there as a very youngish, new, innocent sort of by-election um, by winner, thinking this, you know, these people, they're just, it was so amazing. And even in those days, Bill Cash getting up and sometimes boring us a little, but always you knew that they understood what was going on in the EU. And I, I've been an anti-EU all my my political career. So I, felt, I didn't feel lonely then. I remember the most important thing happened was Maastricht Treaty. We'd opposed everything, Labour right through amendment after amendment, opposed everything. Final night, we were all told we had to abstain and I voted uh, against the Maastricht Treaty. So that was my first sort of disciplinary offence. So you weren't only ahead of, ahead of many others in, in your opposition to the EU. You, you came into Parliament about that time, what, that was, what, 30 years ago? Yes, exactly. In fact, it, I took my seat 30 years ago today. OK. Um, it was a by-election in June, June the 15th and didn't take the seat till the, the 19th, um, few days how, after. How's the Labour Party changed since then? Is it... Is it... Oh, it's, it's, it's unimaginably different now. I, I remember, you know, in those days, I was a new MP. There were only 41 females... We had, of course, um, um, a woman prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, and then we had uh, uh, Betty Boothroyd shortly after as, as, as a woman speaker. Um, I never felt in any way that we were discriminated against being a woman. But in those days, we had a lot of lovely, older Labour MPs who had worked down the pits, who'd been in factories. And I remember very clearly sitting in the tea room and, you know, they would be very nice to me because I was new and, and you would be having a cup of tea and they would be talking about things that had happened maybe 20, 30 years ago. And you sort of felt there was a, a historical link there. And now, of course, I don't think we don't have any of that really within do the you, Labour Party. Do you, do you think the Labour Party is much more, many, many more Labour MPs and, and the Conservative Party, many more sort of career politicians? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, the number of MPs who've started off, got a university degree, gone to work. Um, perhaps in civil society for a short time, gone to work for an MP, become a special advisor, become a minister, you know, that whole trail of it being... Uh, when I came in, I was, you know, I was quite old in, in those days, youngish, I suppose, in terms of that, but I was um, sort of 40 when I came in, so I had had a life and a career. Yeah, and I think it's very cruise. sad, really, that so many MPs come in without having experienced what mm -hmm. I would call real life, you know, they don't all have to go down the pit, but, you know, in terms of work. Done something and I, Done something, and I think that's what's changing now, and I think yeah. that that's going to make Parliament very, very different in the future. I mean, about the, the, the referendum, I know you, you played a key role in the referendum. In fact, you, you, you had a significant 
that was really quite profound because you were one of the few Labour people able to make the the left wing case, if you like, against being in in the EU. Um, what 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 was it like the night of the referendum? Well, Where were you and what were you doing? And when did you suddenly think we might actually win this? Um, well, I, I did, did a rally on the Monday night up in Doncaster, uh, up in Gateshead. Mm-hmm. And I remember that rally f- it feeling, I mean, the emotion and the passion uh, was amazing. And people mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. up to you afterwards and saying, you know, they were so pleased I was there because I was a Labour MP and they were Labour. They'd always voted Labour, but they were really... Uh, annoyed at the Labour position and then people coming up I think that was the thing that really struck me the numbers of people at all the rallies we did who said they'd never voted before Mm. and they were going to vote and I remember appearing on the Daily Politics on the I think it was a Tuesday with the political editor of the New Statesman and the political editor of the Spectator and she was asking them you know well what do you think is going to happen on Thursday and they both said Remain was going to win um, one less less you know less pleased than the other obviously and I just interrupted and said I think you're wrong I said and the reason leave is going to win is people like you don't get out of London enough and that they, was that was the that was the thing people but, didn't understand what was happening up but that, that's such a, it's, it's odd how we often criticize MPs for being out of touch but the pundits the the professional opinion formers opine about the state of a country that Many of them just simply don't really understand at all. Well, they don't get out of London very no. much. They really don't unless they're going out to do a specific... Even in know, London, how many of them really understand some of the more run-down bits of... The, the people who are left behind. I mean, yeah. they genuinely don't see that. And they, don't, they, didn't, they, they didn't see it in anything other than, a, you know, these are people who are probably not really understanding the issue. I mean, that was the, the patri- the patri- patronising attitude yeah. there was, which even I would get, and some of us who were speaking on the leave side would get that, you know, oh, well, sort of pat you on the head. They don't really understand I, I, I remember when I, was sure a, when, when I was a Tory, I was told that I was a swivel-eyed Tory. And when I was UKIP, I was told that I was extreme. And I think it became quite a shock for many of the journalists who are supposed to write about politics. They were so wrong. To, to, to realise that actually... We were more in tune with the country than they were. I think, I think that's right. And I think it, I mean, it was a huge shock. And I remember on the night, of course, feeling, you know, hoping, hoping, hoping. I remember waking up that morning hoping that we were, we were going to get a good result that day. Um, and then that evening at, at one of the events in, in, in Millbank um, Tower, um, seeing that Nigel Farage had come out and sort of almost implied that, um, you know, we were going to lose... And uh, John's, um, John Craig interviewing me on Sky and saying, oh, so you've lost, Kate, you've lost now. Gleefully. Think, yeah, gleefully. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know, I said, um, perhaps, perhaps Nigel's playing a game. I said, let's wait. I'm, and then, of course, the result came through from, from yeah. Uh, Hull. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, I mean, talking a little bit about the Labour movement historically, the Labour mm-hmm. Party was, of course, founded by Keir Hardy. Mm-hmm. Keir Hardy founded the party in order to give a voice to working people. Um, what do you think Keir Hardy and the founders of the Labour Party would think about the Labour Party today run largely by people who basically sided with Goldman Sachs? They're on the side of the Davos elite. Well, I, I, I think they would see it now as a middle-class party, a party who have lost their their links and their roots in that 
amazing working class trade union movement mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And the trade unions, some of them seem to have gone uh, in a, into a situation where they, you know, saw the EU as the great uh, supporter of great rights and things like that, you know, when actually most of our rights were won by, by trade union act, action. I think um, the Labour Party is at a, a stage now. Ironically, we've got a leader uh, and a shadow chancellor who have always throughout their career in, 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 in Parliament uh, been on the side of what would be seen as the working class and spoken mm -hmm. out. And, you know, Jeremy in particular would have attended every single little activity that was about um, rights of people or mm -hmm. some dispute or a, he would be on every picket line. Mm -hmm. And I think it is quite, quite sad, really, that just as there was a sort of leadership um, that wanted to, you know, perhaps change the way the Labour Party had behaved or been under the Blair um, administration, the EU somehow, you know, broken that and made it more difficult, definitely. And, and of course, what we've seen is the very staunch Remainers in Parliament on the Labour side have seen the EU as a way of getting at Jeremy. It's been an attack on Jeremy, almost. You know, the, is a lot the, of it directed at? It's to do with the internal politics of the Labour Party. Yes, and and they know that. Um, the, the the vast majority of. I mean, the key in Labour, the, the big metropolitan cities have huge membership more than in, in areas which mm. were more likely to have been voting leave. So, uh, the, you know, our conference is going to be made up, this coming mm. conference mm. Of, mm. of delegates who will pr pr pretty well all uh, be uh, mandated to vote for a second <laughs> referendum. They'll be more likely to have a sort of social media presence than a trade union membership card. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. that's that change. Uh, but the... You know, Jeremy, I've, I've had big disagreements with Jeremy, particularly over international policies in Ireland and some of his. But, you know, he, you can't fault him for his, his memory of history, mm -hmm. which is why I think he's finding it incredibly uncomfortable, the whole push that there is now to get us to be how, just a Remain party. How do you get on with Jeremy Corbyn personally? Is he... Well, I mean, I don't, he used to have the room next to me, so I see quite a lot of him. And, mm -hmm. of course, being a London MP... Um, and he was a bit like me. He would be spending, because my constituency is so near, I wouldn't be sitting around in the dining rooms in the evening. I'd be over doing something across yeah. the river. And he would be up in Islington. And quite often we would um, have little chats around about sort of five o'clock. Is mm -hmm. there going to be a vote tonight? Are we mm -hmm. going to come back? Is it important mm -hmm. enough to come back for if you're doing other things? Mm -hmm. um, now, he's not, I don't, I don't see him as much. But I, you know, I feel, I, 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 I've always tried in my criticisms of the party to distinguish between my criticisms of the party and that whole kind of um, zealot group on the back benches uh, who just want to stop us leaving, and mm -hmm. Jeremy, because I think he is trying to unite the party, and it's a very difficult issue to unite the party on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, since the referendum campaign, um, you know, we 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 won million strong majority. Yes, it was it was close, but you know, it was it was clear that there was. Know, a, a mandate to take us out of the EU. There's been this extraordinary sort of culture war, this attempt to sort of delegitimize the referendum result. And, and I, I can't help noticing that a lot of the output of some of the public broadcasters, Sky News in particular, uh, the BBC, it's been unrelentingly aimed at trying to delegitimize the referendum result. And demoralize. I mean, I think there's been a, an attempt uh, a very, very clever attempt by 
by the media, backed up by uh, people in Parliament. Let's not forget the vast majority of MPs voted to remain. Yeah. So they were also, in the, they all signed up to a manifesto on both sides of the two main parties that they would honour the result. But that has been uh, gradually whittled away. Mm. And I think one of, the, one of the things we perhaps didn't do well enough during the referendum campaign was to explain to people the process of the Article 50 and that you know mm. whatever we did almost was going to take two years. Mm. So now we have remainers saying, oh, look, it's nearly three years and we're not yeah. even... I was, I was going to say, looking back, are there things you would have done differently both during the referendum campaign mm. and after? I mean, I know for a fact that if... If I could have the past three years again, um, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have just um, encouraged people to sort of wind the campaign down. I, you know, yeah, I, I, no, I think no. we would have had to keep going. I, I think that you know. You see, I remember the day after the referendum, I went back to Northern Ireland and see my mum, who was ninety-five then, and who was a great supporter of Leave, and she was absolutely delighted, and I was, you know, delighted and all of that. And then I remember she said very clearly and simply. But you know Catherine, because call, I'm called Catherine at home, you know Catherine, they'll never let us leave. And I said, oh, mum, don't be silly. You know, we're a democracy, you know, we're a democracy. And I think there was a lot, I genuinely felt this, you know, it wasn't a, it, it, was, a, it was a clear majority. Yeah. We'd been told by everyone that the result would be honoured, that this was your once in a lifetime. And I think all those people, what is so now disheartening and makes me so angry is that all those people who did vote for the for the first time ever yes. really felt we have changed something. Whereas sometimes in a seat which is predominantly Labour, predominantly Conservative, they think their vote's a bit wasted. I, I, this I, is not wasted. I'm sure you've had this conversation. I, I certainly had this conversation dozens of times mm. a day sometimes when I was an MP with people saying, it doesn't make any difference how you vote. And I would I would yeah. always try to say, of course it makes a difference. Uh, the terrible thing would be if, if they don't deliver on the referendum result all of those cynics would have been proved right. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, you know, that's where the Brexit party has, after the Leave Means Leave campaign, which I, I was a part of because it was, again, going to be cross-party. But then, you know, the Brexit party has picked up that, it's, that it's, not, it's not just about leaving now. It is about democracy. Do you think during the referendum campaign itself, mm. we could have perhaps campaign slightly differently. I just look at the powerful reaction has been to the referendum result. And I just wonder if some of the things that we focused on during the referendum campaign, or some of the things some leavers focused on during the referendum campaign, perhaps haven't helped define Euroscepticism in a way that actually we need to <coughs> undefine, if you like. You're talking about immigration. Immigration. This, I mean, <coughs> I'll give you an example. You know, since the referendum, I have been told endlessly by reports in newspapers and on television that there's going to be a massive fall in the number of international students wanting to come and study here. Yeah. It turns out to be absolute nonsense. Yeah. Lots and lots of international students want to come and study here. But what is it about what we said that allow broadcasters and lobbyists and all the others to portray that as being our position? Well, I suppose it was because it looked that, that we were against immigration and that we were never given the opportunity to really explain. I mean, I always tried to say, look, I am not against immigration. What we are looking for is a way of managing. People want to know. They were never asked that their towns and country rural areas have changed and that mm -hmm. suddenly there's masses of 
you know, shops from another country and people living there. It's not that they're actually against those people necessarily. It's because they felt no one had ever asked them. And therefore, we should have been talking much more about, you know, it was a managed... I mean, I think people did try. But, you know, because um, parts of UKIP had been kind of branded almost as, as the word racism now is just used far 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 too it's been lightly it's debased. been it's been completely debased yeah. um and uh, you know the, 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 there was um it, it was a good way for those who wanted us to remain to make us all out as, as nasty people it's quite interesting now of course because the brexit party has more meps from a uh, a bme background than than the Labour Party has, you know. I, th- I think I think I think supposedly racist Eurosceptic Brits now provide yeah, more ex- exactly. ethnic minority. So now we're far right. The, that's Europe. that's the next thing now. We're all we're all anyone who voted was a far right. Um, now in order not just to deliver the referendum result, but in order to achieve a lot of things in politics, you, you got quite a name for yourself of being able to work with people from across the political spectrum. Have you over the years come across some and made friends with some people who are politically very, very different to you? I mean, I know you and Nigel Farage. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I was prepared to work really with anyone within reason. Uh, and obviously, I wouldn't have worked with anyone from the kind of extreme right wing National Front type. Uh, but I was prepared to work with anyone who had this clear objectives of getting us out of the EU. I didn't George Galloway? Um, yeah, I, I worked. I, George actually appeared on one of our platforms. Do you remember uh, one of the Leave London rallies fairly early on? Um, I mean, George, I knew when he came into Parliament first, um, and I'd known him for quite a long time. I, I he, he, actually, I know it's probably heretic, heretical to say it, but I actually like George. I don't agree with a lot of what he says, uh, and I think sometimes he's his own worst enemy, a bit like sometimes Nigel has been in the past. So I, I, but I'm quite happy to work across party. And of course, I, because I was from a small rural farm and very keen on the countryside, um, and I refused being sort of vaguely libertarian, whatever that means, I did not want to ban hunting. Yes. So I got myself into a situation where I was in a minority on that issue in, mm-hmm. in Labour. I think they were quite astonished the day of the hunting ban, and I got up and spoke against um, and therefore, you began to work with people in the Countryside Alliance mm-hmm. who were from different... Uh, but, you know, I think at local level, too, I've always felt that local councillors should work much more closely together. And that mm-hmm. used to happen, but it's become much more party-orientated now. You know, there's much more uh, reliance on, on, on loyalty and, and all of that. And but I think that's quite sad. It's interesting. There are occasions in your career when you've taken a principled stance against, in effect, the rest of your party, but you stuck with it and remained loyal. Well, the Iraq war was one, of course. I opposed the Iraq you war. You opposed the Iraq yeah. war. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, but there were a lot of us then. What, what does amuse me is that actually it's been some of the ultra-Romainers who went off and formed that new political party yeah. that got all the media attention that no one can remember exists anymore. What was it? Remain? Remain change, change UK. Change, change UK. UK, yes. Yep, they... They all went. They were meant to be the loyalists, you know. I remember my. I mean, I'm I'm in Lambeth, Vauxhall, and of course I've had a interesting relationship with my constituency for some time. It's now a kind of progress lot, and momentum are fighting out for control of the party. So I'm kind of in the in the middle. Is so progress the sort of centre right? Yeah, the centre right. Momentum's yeah, more left. Yeah, but progress would be the Blairites, right? Um, and momentum, obviously, of people who would see themselves 
loyal first to Jeremy, but also perhaps critical of Jeremy on some, you know, more to the left. Definitely and, not a cult. And, <laughs> and I, um, uh, but next door to me in Lambeth was Streatham with, with Chuka yeah. um, as the MP. And I remember when I would have rise with my party, um, some of them saying, oh, why can't you be more like Chuka? You know, he's loyal to the party. You're always criticising Lambeth Labour Council. And I'm saying, well, I am going to criticise it because it's, it's, it's been a pretty bad councillor. What do you think is going to happen politically? I know this is a, a, a very unpredictable period in our political history, but what do you think is likely to happen over the next few months? Do you think that we're going to leave the European Union and then have a general election? And if that did happen, would the Labour Party really want to go into a general election after we've left the EU campaigning to, in effect, get back in? Well, that's what I, I said about Tom Watson when he made those remarks uh, earlier uh, few days ago about a second referendum and that we were a Remain part. I mean, it's perfectly acceptable for someone to say, I accept the referendum result, we're going to leave, but I'm going to spend my next 20 years of my life campaigning for us to join again. Good luck I, with I, that. Yeah, good luck with that, because I think, I think everyone knows that once we're out, the way the EU is changing and all of that, it's not, we're not going to go back in. But, even even the Remainers, they're not making the case for EU membership. Well, they haven't principle. made the case for staying in the EU at all. I mean, it's all about was, attacking leavers. It, it's attacking leavers and implying that you know we couldn't survive. There's no confidence in our country. We couldn't yeah. survive if we're not part of this shrinking EU. Um, but th I, I I think that um, we labour. I, I don't think there can be a general election. I don't think either party, main party, will want a general election until we're out. Yeah. Uh, now, that, um, I mean, I, I hope Boris means what he's saying, that he will take yeah. us out on the 31st of October, yeah. come what may. I mean, we all would prefer a, a, a deal of sorts, but I don't, I don't have the fear that if we were to leave, that we couldn't immediately start the negotiations and using WTO to be able to start, get an agreement. In, in terms of the parliamentary process, we often hear people saying, you know, there aren't the numbers to give permission for us to leave without a deal in Parliament. We don't need it. it, it absolutely. So surely if the default is to, to just leave, if yeah. you had a, a prime minister who was able to establish mastery over the civil service to stop them yeah. constantly trying to uh, uh, find excuses not to prepare. Yeah. And actually, if you just if you just allow the clock to yeah. do what the clock does, you'll, you'll find that actually we leave. Well, that that's what I would like to see happen uh, mm -hmm. because I don't think, I mean, you might come back and say something about the backstop, but I don't think we see any really fundamental changes. But I think whoever is the new leader has to take a grip of the civil service at that level. Mm -hmm. Because I remember hearing from someone who'd just gone in as a minister shortly after we voted to leave, into the Foreign Office and not say who it was, but it was a private meeting and um, made it quite clear that, you know, the Foreign Office were so shocked mm. at the result. They just had not had it on their radar that we could possibly lose and had only just after about four or five months begun to kind of get over it that they, they, we might just be, have to leave. All these mandarins have regarded the referendum result as a catastrophe that needs yeah. to somehow, yeah. we should just, could you just be, be a bit careful with your microphone? Sorry. Just to, yeah. uh, as a, all, all the mandarins have regarded the referendum result as a sort of a problem to be managed rather than as the legitimate expression of public opinion, which has to be acted yes. upon. And the prime minister herself, I don't think ever really 
came to terms with the fact that she didn't I know she wanted to deliver I, I give her that I think she did want us to leave but I she didn't want us to leave for the right reasons I mean she didn't you, you feel sorry for her at all I did at the beginning I mean I actually the first month or two of her being prime minister I was quite sort of commented about you know I felt she was doing okay and her speeches that she made sounded mm. the right thing but I think then she got caught up in that machinery of government who yeah. were telling her all the time you can't do this and I think she lacked the imagination and yes, the verve to yeah. overcome and, it. and she didn't I mean to send in civil servants to be mm. um doing your negotiations who, who really probably didn't believe it and had you probably got back channels I, mean, with... I think people forget just how chummy our civil servants would have been with eu of course because over the years they relied of, on of course you could almost say the eu was created by bureaucrats on both sides which keeps them <laughs> because it allows people like them to decide public policy yeah so yeah. you know it's it's yeah. the whole idea that we leave is anathema to the bureaucratic mind yes and they they were able to behind the scenes you know, it was no. It was no secret that lots of things got leaked, which were mm. negative reporting. And it was. I think there was a whole attempt. Parliament was to slow down and denigrate it, and the civil service um, made it much more difficult for ministers, even those who were very, very strong leavers. You know, mm. like David Davis and and um, others within the Brexit department. I mean, Domin you just have to listen to Dominic Raab. He gave mm. evidence to one of our committee, one of our own committee, and it was. Shocking, shocking, mm. absolutely shocking he, the way he, he was treated. Yeah. Do, do you think, I mean, if you were advising the next Prime Minister... Unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think actually they probably need all the advice they can get, actually, yeah. if they're going to bring a, yeah. a sort of sense mm. of cohesion. Um, if you were advising them, would you... I mean, I, I would advise them to sack a number of civil servants mm. specifically. Well, I would get rid of the Cabinet Secretary tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's... Uh, and I would... I, I think he would, and then they have to have a very politically led uh, team of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would love to see um, Ian Duncan Smith brought back in again as, a, as some kind of kind of keeping things. Mm. Uh, I just think he would. He's, he's got a. I think he's got a lot of ability that mm -hmm. should be brought back in. But definitely, it has to be politically led. Yeah. And and um, you know, Boris will start off if he becomes the prime minister with a great deal of willingness from conservative MPs, even Remainers, you know, Remainers, people who voted Remain, I think we have to distinguish by yeah. the genuine person who voted Remain. But Reconcilables. The reconcile the word, yeah. Uh, and I think he, he has to go in absolutely, you know, full speed to say, right, are we do, making all the preparations? What more yeah. needs to be done? Yeah. Yeah. And to yeah. try and stop this, this um, feeling that it's, all gloom and doom, you know, about, about a no deal, that actually we could do very well. And it, ultimately, we could spend some of that 39 billion. We don't, you might have to pay them something. I accept that. But most of that could be spent then on uh, helping people who are being in the short term Mm -hmm. uh, hit by some of the issues to do with the no deal. Mm -hmm. Now, we were told in the run up to the referendum that there was going to be a recession if we voted to leave. In fact, output has risen, I think, pretty much every quarter since. We're told there'll be mass unemployment. In fact, there are more jobs on this island now than ever before in history. We were told that international students and migrant workers wouldn't want to come here. Actually, yeah. they are applying to come here in record numbers. One area of Project Fear that I think you probably know more about than almost anyone else is the idea that somehow if we leave the Irish situation becomes unmanageable, the border becomes unmanageable. 
Talk us through that. What what would actually happen if we left without a deal to the, the, both well, the think, Republic and uh, the province? Well, I think the mistake was made by uh, the Prime Minister and the, uh, the negotiators accepting the script of the EU, which was that this was the most crucial issue and that this, on this reason, why they had to have the backstop and the very little discussion about the practical things that happen at the moment when you have a country that has a different uh, um, corporation tax, different excise duties, uh, different currency, um, that's a lot of smuggling, which still goes on. And, you know, that's why quite... But regu- good luck in trying to stop that. No, I, no, I, I wouldn't advise well, No, to but stop I mean, it. quite regularly, you will see um, border people stopping vans because they think there's some smuggling going on. So mm. the idea that somehow... You know, there's this totally seamless border. Yes, there is for people, but there will still be for people, mm. whether we leave with a no deal or not. Um, the, 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 the crucial thing is that, obviously, the farmers who are selling to the Republic um, would not want to face high tariffs on their, their pr- produce. But, you know, there's no reason for that to happen mm. if... If the European Union cares as much as they say they do about mm-hmm. good relations, it's a tiny, tiny proportion of the whole of their economic single market. But I remember being told I, I went to Ireland and I was shown around the border yeah. by uh, people in quite a lot of quite a lot of detail. I, I went to speak at the McGill Summer School, and oh, um, uh, I, I, I spent quite a lot of time being shown around the border. And I, I, I remember being, you know being made aware that actually a lot of farmers in the Republic at the moment have preferential access to the UK market, which is great. It means mm-hmm. cheap, good quality food for UK households. I, I wonder if part of what's going on is an attempt to make sure that they continue to have that privileged market access. There's this terrible fear that actually if we leave, we might actually open our market up to South American beef yeah. and American Products and 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 I I think there's a lot of protectionism. Yeah, I would always. It's not really the troubles. That, yeah, I would hope that that sort of um, special relationship, which there is between the Republic of Ireland and and, and the UK, that those were the those would be the kind of things that um, there would be a willingness if everyone actually wanted it to continue. We don't want to put tariffs or restrictions. No, so you don't. But, but I mean, the Irish government have and Veradka, I think in particular, and Coveney have have really played very cleverly that whole border issue. Yeah. And the whole linking with the Belfast Agreement, Good Friday <laughs> Agreement, it's yeah. just nonsense. I mean, the, the EU's never mentioned hardly in the Good Friday Agreement. But it's almost as if, um, you know, the, the, the whole deal that Theresa May came back with. How could she was- come back with something knowing that they had a special relationship with the DUP, that this would just not go down well. But I, I mean, I think she was that, she was that smart. She was presented with a deal from the EU side where the, ba- the backstop was presented as an add-on. In fact, the deal was built around the backstop, yeah. and the whole purpose of the backstop was to this keep is us in to the keep us tied yeah. to the customs union. And the reason why the EU has been so absolutely uncompromising on a backstop to the backstop, a timeline to the backstop, is precisely because the whole purpose of the agreement is that we should never escape. Well, that that, that is, and that is what. You know, we should have all been saying, uh, and the prime minister should have yeah. been saying, and, and she was too you know, witless to understand but, this. But yeah. but it all then got confused with this idea that this was all about protecting the peace but, process, and it's complete. You know, yeah. we know it's complete nonsense, and it was just so disappointing. 
And I went to see the Prime Minister, as, as many of us did individually, when, when just coming up to her first vote uh, uh, and or the second vote when she started talking to people more. And she just didn't seem to... And I said to her, Prime Minister, it looks to the perception in Northern Ireland, the perception is that you are just simply going along with Baratka, that you haven't taken him on in any way mm. over this. And uh, she sort of said, well, you know, he can be quite difficult, something like that. And that. I mean, it just felt all the time that nobody really went in there and said to the EU, this is just not acceptable and no, we're not no, going to allow no. it. Oh, well, the one time a minister did, I heard Dom Rob try well, to say he was undermined by number 10. Yeah, and, and uh, <laughs> by David Liddington down in, in, in Dublin. I mean, there is, a, you know, that, that whole Northern Ireland Irish dimension. Um, I mean, the Irish government um, are loving it. Sinn Féin, of course, changed their position. They'd always been against the EU, against the Master's Ourselves Treaty, alone, the but now they want integration. Now they want it. Um, for me, you see, the nation state is what is the foundation of our democracy absolutely and I, I i cannot understand how people would want to to move away from that and and of course that's what the eu project mm. is all about mm. Mm. so it's it can it, it can be very depressing at times because you sometimes think am i you know is there something wrong with me have i not quite got it because all these other people seem so certain about things and to me it's it an awful lot of it is just common sense yeah um, changing tax slightly, Jeremy Corbyn came within, I think, four or 5,000 votes of becoming Prime Minister at the last election. He Is that all? I believe so. Yeah. If there had been four or 5,000 people changed their mind in, in a few mm-hmm. key constituencies, yeah. he would have got a majority. It was, it was that close. Um, and, you know, he, he's perhaps less popular now amongst the younger demographic yeah. than he was, but he's, he's, he's doing well. I wonder... Is this more than just a sort of a, 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 a fad? Is, is there a fundamental problem with the economy that is driving a younger generation towards a sort of a, a revived left-wing socialism? Well, obviously, the years of, of austerity, if you want to use that word, have, you know, people genuinely are, in some areas are being very badly hit. Has so, there been austerity? Well, there's certainly been cutbacks in... Areas that a lot of people at the poorer end of our our kind of uh, spectrum have relied on in the past Mm -hmm. to be a support mechanism for them and their families. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt about it that particularly in in areas to do with um, social services and um, family support, some of that in some local councils have, have been hit very badly. And I think... A lot of the provision for young people, youth clubs and so on, um, that has been cut back. I think local authorities have sometimes used cuts as an excuse for not doing something or for doing something that they wanted to do anyway. But, you know, young people are growing up now with social media, with with a kind of way that the, the message gets across very quickly uh, and a message of it's all their fault, you know, it it must be the government's fault for everything mm-hmm. and we are therefore going to support Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it raises the question of whether we do need to change our electoral system because I think it's pretty, pretty unfair. But, but, that's interesting, but I would argue that it's not actually income inequality 
that 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 is a problem. I would argue that actually income inequality is at a thirty-year low. Um, although people people may argue with that, yeah. um, uh, data I've seen would suggest that income inequality is at a, a thirty-year low. I would argue that there's something slightly different going on. Um, take for example your constituency. Before this, uh, before we started filming, I, I looked up the average house price in oh. in Vauxhall in <laughs> a two-bedroom house over a million pounds. Yeah. Um, the average property in Vauxhall, £700,000. Mm. Now, rent, I, I looked at the average rent. People, people could easily be charged £2,000, um, uh, £3,000 um, a month. Mm. I mean, this is serious money. So is there not a danger that you, 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 you end up with a central London where you've either got plutocrats oh. who can afford it all people living in council houses. Yeah, I mean, I have seen over my years as Vauxhall MP the changing nature of, of, of the constituency. You drive out and, the middle and, class? Yeah, absolutely. And what we have driven out too is a very substantial numbers of our black community. Now, in Brixton has completely changed, uh, you know, the whole Brixton market, the modernisation of that, the kind of bringing in of, of lots of wine bars and shops. And yes, it's great for those people who can afford to... Just hipsters. Yeah, it's become very, very trendy. Um, and we have, you know, large estates where, of course, many people did exercise their right to buy some years ago. Mm-hmm. And some of them now, as their families have grown up, are selling mm-hmm. and finding that's quite... But the most important thing to me is that nearly all the new developments along the river are hugely expensive private the owned, and it seems ridiculous that they're saying they're paying the same council tax as somebody, you know, in a very modest little no. flat. But if if income, and I mean specifically income inequality, has not got worse, and in a way people are better off because the cost of consumer goods and mobile phones. But they've lost the communities. Yes, that's what. But, they have. but if but if there's asset price inequality, you know, asset price inflation. So if you own a house or a hedge fund, you become incredibly wealthy. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought. Some of the dissatisfaction amongst younger voters, particularly in places like London, is that they don't see the, any the, chance of yeah, them getting on the ladder. The, the economy is not yeah. working, and if if you're a young person growing up in London, you've got the the, the gig economy all around you. You've got the sort of the gig lifestyle. Mm. You don't need to own a car because you can rent one by the day, by the hour. Mm. Um, you don't own a house because you can't afford it. So so much of your life is ephemeral and temporary transient. and transient. Yeah. And, you know, so you continue to have what is in effect the lifestyle of a teenager well into your 20s and 30s. And mm-hmm. I, I would have thought that perhaps explains this dissatisfaction and this, this support for an alternative. I mean, that's, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Um, I also see, you see, it used to be that you would have a family growing up on an estate and when the children got, or the child or older got to the age of, 2018, 19, they had a chance of getting onto the council ladder. And there was a commitment we used to have until it was then decided that it was racist, uh, you know, that you could, um, families would, they would give priority to people. So you kept families and communities together. Mm-hmm. Now that, that obviously had to change at one time because of perhaps before they became uh, larger communities, but now of, of, of people from different backgrounds, but now of course it actually cuts against um, the um, Afro-Caribbean community who brought their families up third, fourth generation and now see that, you know, the two-bedroom flat next door when they're totally desperate for their one of their children to get something or a young couple that's that's living with them, 
it it doesn't there's no priority for people living on that estate and they see it going to uh, and it, this was this was said to me very clearly and it's not racist to say it but this was going to someone from the portuguese community or the latvian community who or the smiley community mm -hmm. who hadn't really been there very long and i always say to people because when i first came to london you know i i stayed in lodgings then i went into a bed sit then eventually I got a little one bedroom and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And, you know, there was a sort of, you waited and you expected to have to wait. Now people have very little chance of ever getting onto a ladder that's going to lead to them being able to own something. I, I, I just worry about the long-term implications on social cohesion. If you create a property market yeah. where you've got a few very, very rich people um, and then you've got people who can't possibly aspire to own property assets, but many of whom might be first generation coming in from overseas. And, you know, you, you, how, how are I we do. going to make sure their children have something in common and think as one as yeah. a country? Yes, it's, it's, I don't think there's been much thought given to any mm. of that. And, and, but I would say about places like Vauxhall still, a lot of the people who bought originally bought down in sort of Camberwell or bits of, Stockwell and Oval, when property was very, very low, when Lambeth mm -hmm. was seen as a place that nobody wanted to go and live in. Now, they have, they've, all, they've grown up and are still there. And there is, I'm always delighted just how much of a mix there is actually mm -hmm. between on, in some of the, you know, the friends groups of the parks or the, the local, um, you know, a big housing estate, which has got round it, very, very expensive housing. There is a mix, but I don't know whether the new people coming in are going to have that same mix. Yeah. You know, there was yeah. that old-fashioned working-class idea that they did, you know, people coming in who'd lived there felt they were Lambethians and yeah. that they, they had as much in common with somebody living on the estate. Yeah. Now, that's changing. I mean, at schools, which yeah. were, were at one time uh, a sort of melting pot, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in London, particularly inner London, you get this incredible stratification. Oh. You get... You get a lot of a very high proportion of mums and dads in London send their kids to private school. Mm -hmm. You get a great competition for good state schools, yes, free like schools. The prime Minister sends yeah. his children to, yeah. and, and and then you get schools that might segregate in effect on the basis of ethnicity and 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 all sorts of other things. And you know, I, I, I'm I'm I wonder what you thought about that. I'm not in favour of forcing people. To go to certain types of schools, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of, of private education, mm. but I, I do I do wonder that if we're not careful, London, oh, you know, a tale of two cities. Yeah, and it it is particularly true uh, amongst the white community and and the sort of aspiring uh, middle class. In I have schools now, and and they're very aware of this, mm. where the catchment area is very mixed and might even be a majority of, of white. Families, and yet that school will be a primary school will be mm. like ninety percent mm. um, black or Asian, and and it, that is you know so you have you go to an assembly and there'll be two white children in the assembly. Now that is or, not typical. Now schools are very keen to try and change that. Uh, some of it is 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 about private schooling, but a lot of parents. You know, it takes a long time when, I mean, Lambeth education used to be very bad. It's now, I think, really got good. Um, most of our schools are doing extremely well. And there was Do they no have academies and free schools? Yes, but mixture. Yeah. Um, but the, 
it takes a while for people to accept. Yeah. And so they tend to think, oh, well, if I send my child over to a school in Westminster, even if it's a state school, that's better than a state school in Lambeth. But it, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is something that's changing. But you're right. We, we, we cannot end up with, because um, uh, that is even more divisive than people, you know, people talk about integration and diversity and all of that. But you've mm -hmm. got to have a feeling that people are, are, are able to mix and if you don't mix when you're a young and child... If you don't mix in the first generation, mm. that's, that's manageable. But if the second and third generation, you're living in a completely different London, that's, that's worrying. That's really worrying. Yes, and some of the communities, understandably, when they come... I mean, the Somalian community do tend to sort of stick to their own area in, 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 in But this is true, I mean, in America... And it happened years you would get, ago you would with get, the Irish people. Yeah, you would get Little Italy and yeah. you would get Little Poland in, yeah. in, in American cities. But, you know, after the second or third generation, you know... People... People were well, American. Yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, intermarriage these days yeah. now, which has yeah. changed the, yeah. the nature of um, Talking a little bit about the economy, you're, you're a... Would you call yourself a socialist? Um, yes, I... I, I, I be, well, I believe that there is... A, a vehicle, there should be a vehicle for redistribution, provided it's done in a way that is, is fair and um, it doesn't, um, I mean, I think, I think it depends what you mean by socialist. <laughs> I mean, signs, it was, it's like being asked, are you a feminist, you see? Are you a feminist? No, I don't consider myself a feminist. I, I, I don't like the term. Mm -hmm. I, prefer, and I, I absolutely believe in you know, women having absolutely equality. And um, some of that is there is still an inbuilt tradition of being perhaps not as keen on that somewhere, some mm -hmm. parts of our mm -hmm. country. So I'm, I'm very keen on it. But I think the word feminism has been sort of hijacked again. Yeah. All these words are being abused now. Would you, would you be the kind of socialist that would want to renationalize railways? Now, I would like to bring the post-Royal Mail back okay. into public ownership. And I would like to bring railways back because I, I but I think we could bring it back in a way that's not the way it used to be um, but I think you know the way that it was privatized and everything was split up it's a night I don't travel but by train very much to be honest but when I do I'm just shocked at they, how difficult it is to get a ticket that you know and and, and you have the, the the train operators who run the actual Rolling right. stock, yes. and then you have a company that's quasi-nationalised, and they each blame each other when something goes wrong. I, 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 I often found in my experience as an MP that actually the customer was completely ignored by the rail operator. The rail operator was more interested in in keeping in with the um, with what used to be called rail track. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I mean, I do think I don't believe in mass um, public ownership, and I and I think there's no doubt about it because I remember some of the um, ways that uh, the inefficiencies and the arrogance of, of a lot of uh, nationalized industries. But I think where, where there is, um, you know, if, 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 if we can find a way that the public sector can do it as well, uh, and it is difficult because there's much more likelihood to be a kind of constraints and, and a feeling that, you know, that you're in the job for life uh, when it's publicly owned as distinct from a privatized company, but I just think the railways have got to the stage now uh, where, honestly, I think the vast majority of even conservative voters would say, "Look, we've got to look at some other way of doing this." Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think people people want change. I'm just not I sure just, it's the right I, way. I, I fear. I mean, 
bluntly, it would mean putting civil servants, sort of people who made such a mess yeah. of Brexit, <laughs> in charge of the transport system. I know. Maybe when we leave the EU, we'll be able to have a little bit more of, let's give British companies, let's give British, you know, that little bit of extra help and support. Doesn't I mean, that? It, that terrifies me. Why? Does it really? I mean, but I mean, it's just that, you know, the big multinational corporations come in now and get, pick up everything, don't they? Or but, but Google, um, Apple, there's pesky multinationals that supply us with cheap mobile phones. Airline travel. I, I, yeah, well, I'm, I, not going to, I'm certainly not going to nationalise airline travel. I like EasyJet. I love what a lot of those multinational companies do. They provide us with cheap products at affordable prices. Mm. I mean, back in the bad old days... There was um, a British car company, I think, called British Leyland. Leyland. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I mean, it, it, its cars were famous for never starting. <laughs> yeah, well, especially one that was built on a Friday. I, I just wonder if a lot of the public administrators in this country, one of the fundamental problems with our civil service, we all think it's the Rolls-Royce civil service, the Northcote Trevelyan reforms. I don't. <laughs> but uh, indeed, you know, we, we, we think of the civil service as competent, but in fact, it's full of people who were brilliant at getting past a selection board 20, 30 yeah. years ago. They may have got a, a brilliant degree in classics from Oxbridge. They may have been brilliant at sitting a fast stream civil service exam on a wet Thursday but afternoon in 1997. they're not a practical person of what to do. No. They're not qualified to make no. public policy today. No. And, and yet the assumption is, is that they know better than we do. Yeah. And, I, and well, of course, they're trying to change some of our bringing in people who've been in business into the into the civil service more yeah. than they used to do but yeah. um i it's i think what is what i suppose you could say even if you're a staunch remainer you could say one of the positive things about the whole referendum debate in the eu and what's happened since is that it's actually making us think mm. about some of these issues that would have been swept under the carpet how, how can we better run the country now that yes. we're in charge <laughs> yes, yes, we can't yes. blame brussels we can't anymore brussels, and that, 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 that is a I, very positive I, I, thing i'm going to find that really refreshing actually i mean you know everything if, it's you can blame the eu for everything if if, mm. if we make mistakes and we know they're homegrown it's our fault our fault and yeah. we need to fix it no i think i think that is actually quite and, and you know people go on about people voting because of immigration and all actually i think the whole thing about you know, a bit cliched now, taking back control. But people did have the sovereignty issue there. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that we should be able to, we're a big enough country, we should be able to make our own decisions. It doesn't mean you can't mm -hmm. cooperate. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that somehow if you're out of the EU, we'll never speak to anybody in France again. Or it's nonsense, you know. Oh, it just seems so obvious to me. Perhaps yeah. I'm you, a bit naive. Kate, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And um, just a, a, a final question. When we leave... Mm -hmm. which I, I'm hoping will be um, on or around November the 31st, just in time for Guy Fawkes night. What will you do the night we leave? Will you, will you throw a party? I don't know. I've, I've probably, I might shed a tear, actually, because, uh, you know, it would be just such an emotional relief mm -hmm. that finally people have been listened to and we've mm -hmm. got out. Mm -hmm. And then we have to start the, um, the hard work of making it a real success. Good. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank and you. I look forward to it. Thank Thanks. you very much.